right. Praise the Lord, brothers and sisters. We thank God for his goodness, uh, for his mercy, his righteousness. God is just, uh, you know, he's just worthy of all the praise. We can never say too much about God um, because there's, there just aren't enough words to even describe God, let alone how good he is. But we are thankful nonetheless for every opportunity that we get to share the word of God. We are back again in the Bible Matters uh, series. As we've said before, this series does not necessarily uh, follow a set pattern or a set topic. It's whatever God gives us. That's what we talk about. We believe that God is a right now God and he's speaking to us right now. So when the spirit moves and gives us something, we want to be obedient to that. And we want to make sure that we capture what the spirit is speaking to us. And then we make that available to whomsoever will. Uh, in this session, I'd like you to turn to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. I want you to look at chapter 12. Um, we're going to start at verse 41, go to about verse 44. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, a few things um, in this set, the parallel uh, text uh, meaning that this particular story that we're going to talk about, or this um, um, this this instance of, uh, or this happening in the scripture, is recorded elsewhere, not just in Mark, but is also recorded in the Gospel of Luke, and you'll find that parallel account in Luke chapter twenty-one, verses one through four. Okay, you can read either one of those. But for the purpose of our text, we will be using Mark twelve. Um, chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. The word of God says this, and Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, verily, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had even all her living. May the Lord have a blessing um, to the reading, hearing, and doing of his word. And as always, especially to the doing, those that obey the word, the word only works when you use it. Amen. You got to be not just a hearer, but you got to be a doer as well. And um, verse 41, for reiteration purposes, Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury and many that were rich cast in much. Now, in this particular lesson, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about giving, but the purpose of this is not so much to talk about money, although money is a subject that Jesus dealt with quite a bit in his earthly ministry. You know, that's It wasn't a topic that he shied away from, nor should it be a topic that we shy away from. But the focus of this is not strictly on the monetary aspect of it. 
Okay. We're going to talk about um, in this particular lesson, we're going to talk about giving, but we're going to talk about it in the broader sense. If we had to give a theme or a topic to this, then what we're really going to talk about is giving the things we need most. Okay. So if you're making notes, you're listening to this, whenever you listen to this, wherever you may be in the world, when you listen to this, the, um, the topic you want to put under this or over this would be giving the things we need need most. Amen. Now, for background purposes, in this particular text, we find our Lord and Savior, we find Jesus um, in the temple. And that's important. Jesus is in the temple. Okay. Um, and in the temple, he's seated physically near the treasury. The word of God says, and Jesus sat over against the treasury, okay? So Jesus is in the temple and he, uh, in within the temple, he's near the treasury or he's, or near this collection box, amen. Now, the fact that he calls the disciples over to him, we see that later in verse 43, amen, when he calls the disciples over to him, that tells us that not only is Jesus in the temple, amen, but the disciples are also in the temple with him. And that's a very important part of there. And it'll come into play a little bit later. Jesus is in the temple with his disciples and he's sitting near the treasury or the collection box, as it were, the temple or the synagogues had that um, portion or that designated area um, where, um, where the giving could uh, take place or the, where the treasury would be. And within this temple, um, within this setting, this is where Jesus is, is sitting. Amen. The disciples are in there with him and this is where they are. Now, when the disciples of the Lord go to church, I want you to understand this. Now I want you to, when we talk, I want you to think about just the disciples. Okay. When the disciples of the Lord go to church, okay, they can count on, disciples of the Lord can count on the presence of God being there. Why? Because when it comes to the disciple or to a disciple, God goes with them. Amen. A disciple can always count on the presence of the Lord being near, being accounted for, being right there. When they go to church, when they go to the temple, whatever you may call it, where they go, where the, the, a, a disciple, a true disciple can always count on the presence of the Lord being with them. We need to understand that distinction because you, you need to understand something that a disciple is a Christian, but a Christian is not necessarily a disciple. To be a disciple means that you are, in essence, the, for what the Bible describes, a disciple is literally a carbon copy of the master. So the way the master thinks, the way he acts, the way he perceives things, whatever it is of that master, the way that he does or what he does, a disciple of that master is a carbon copy, so to speak, of that, meaning that the disciple should be almost as good as having the master himself 
they're present with them. Okay. So in other words, if, 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 if the master is not there, but you have a disciple, the disciples present should be good enough. Why? Because the disciple is a carbon copy or is supposed to be a carbon copy of the master. His mannerisms, the way he acts, the way he talks, the way he carries himself, his thoughts and his views, if he is a true disciple, then he mirrors, amen, okay? He mirrors that of the master, okay? When in the Bible, many people get this, don't, don't really understand it, but you need to understand this. You got to understand that there's a difference between being just a Christian and being a disciple. You got, you got to understand that because in the Bible, when you read of the miracles that, that, that the, this, that the believers of Christ were able to do, you got to understand something that those miracles that were performed by those followers of Christ, they were done by disciples, what I mean is, is that, and I'm not talking about just the 12 disciples. No, no, no. I want you to not zero in that far. I want you to, to reduce the magnification. And I need you to look at it from a higher standpoint. I'm talking about the disciples in the sense of all of those who have decided that I'm not going to just be a casual believer. I'm not going to just be a person who warms a pew. I'm not going to be a person who just goes through the motion. No, I am going to live what the word of God says. And that's a difference because you got a lot of people who want the title. They want to be known. They want it to be known in title only that they are associated with Jesus, but they don't want to be known in the fellowship of his suffering. They don't want to be known when it comes to the walk and to the and, and to the talk and the lifestyle. They don't want to be known that. Why? Because they want to hold on to aspects of this world. But no man can serve two masters. It, do, it doesn't work. When you look at the miracles that were performed by those who were truly sold out, who truly believed, those individuals were true disciples. So when you read in the scripture, and you see the, the disciples, they're doing these miracles and all these things. You need to keep in mind something. The average Christian cannot do that. Praying and having these things happen and all, it, it doesn't work for them. It, it doesn't work. You will, as long as you remain on the sideline of your belief, never truly committing to the game never getting into the actual walk. You want the title, but you don't want the lifestyle. You don't want what comes with it. You just want to be known by that. But until you commit wholeheartedly to the way of Christ, you need to understand that the promises that the Bible of, of what we can do and the power and the authority that we are able to operate in, that will never include you. You, my friend, will not be able to walk in that. You won't be able to accomplish greater works. You won't be able to accomplish great exploits. No, that won't be you. No, sir. No, ma'am. That will not be you. That power is reserved for the disciple. 
the disciple is literally like the equip. The disciple is like, how would I put it? I'll put it like this. If we liken Christianity to, or being a Christian to being part of an army, okay? Then a disciple would be a special forces operator within the kingdom of God. They would be the ones that are highly trained. They would be the ones that are authorized, skillful in the use of all tactics and all tools. And the bottom line, and they are the ones that experience, they are the ones that are able to to experience magnificent results from their prayers. Not from the standpoint necessarily of having whatever it is that they pray for be something that just impacts them. No. So not just a, a, a prayer, not just their prayers of supplication, the ones that pertain to them. So where they're praying and they're seeking God for just themselves or for something that pertains to them. No, but they also experience the power of answered prayer on behalf of others. They can pray for these big things. They can pray for these incredible things. They can pray for these things that defy logic and mind and everything else. Do you hear what I'm telling you? These are the ones who are able to pray and do the things that Jesus gave us permission and power to do. They're able to pray and raise the dead. They're able to pray and the sick be healed. They're able to pray in miracle signs and wonders. That does not happen for just the average child of God. Because God is not going to put that power in the hands of a novice. He's not going to put that power in the hands of somebody who, who ain't committed. You want to be a disciple. Jesus said, go ye therefore and make disciples. He didn't tell them, he didn't tell us to go make Christians. And the problem that the church has is that we got more Christians than we got disciples. That's why we have as much backsliding and all of these other things that go on in the church. Because we haven't gone as far as making disciples. When you make a disciple, you replicate the master. And the call for us to go into the world and make disciples is the call for us to make replications of the master, not replication of ourselves because we're not the master. The disciple is not the master. Jesus Christ and him alone is the master and we are calling is to replicate him. Amen. But we only go as far as, oh, let's you, you, I'll repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus, be filled with the Holy Ghost, and then we stop right there. As soon as that happens, we stop right there. We don't teach people how to live. We don't teach them the do's and don'ts of God. 
We don't teach them how to behave before God. We don't teach them how to reverence God, how to respect God, how to love fellow man, how to endure hardship like a good soldier. We don't do that. And in many ways, this is why the modern day church is weak and lethargic in many ways. Why? Because there is an absence of disciples. The power that we have in the Holy Ghost. It is the disciples that are able to use that power. Not your casual, run-of-the-mill Christian. Who is that? That's the person who just wants the title. Oh, I'm a Christian. You do just enough to appease your own conscience so that you can sleep at night while you sin and during the day. You tell yourself, I'm a believer. I've this, I've that. But you have no idea. that God will absolutely check out. God will absolutely check out. And many of us are giving God his eviction notice because we insist on living in sin. And nobody else might be telling you, but I'm going to tell you until my dying breath. You cannot live in sin and have God. It's not going to work. And at some point, you're going to have to wake up and you're going to have to realize that. Nevertheless, Jesus and the disciples are in the temple near the treasury or the collection box. And what a wonderful blessing it is to know that when disciples of the Lord, Jesus Christ, go to church. And I'm not talking about the physical building because we are the church. Church is made up of lively stones. It consists of the born again, water baptized, Holy Ghost filled believers in Christ Jesus. That's the church. So whenever we go to church, which simply means that wherever we are, because we are the church, we take the church with us. Amen. We can always, if you are a disciple, you can always count on the presence of God being present and accounted for. You will never go to church. You will never have to go to church hoping to meet God. <laughs> no, you won't need to do that. You won't need to do that. And the reason why is this because when you're a disciple, a disciple don't go to church to get a hold of God. No. Disciple take Jesus, take Jesus to church with him. Disciple, in other words, disciple goes to church with God. He don't go to church to get God and to meet God. No, he already dealing with God well before he get into a, uh, a corporate body of believers. No, 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 he don't, he, he don't, you don't, you don't have to go to church. She doesn't have to go to church to go and find God. God is riding right along with them on their way to the corporate gathering or wherever it is that they are. 
And I want to tell somebody, if you go to church with God, you will never have to wonder and worry about his presence. Am I going to have a so-called dead service or am I going to have no, God's going to move just the way he want to move and the way he needs to move. And you are going to have front row seats. You want to know why? Because you brought him with you. He's guaranteed to be there. Psalms 46, one through five says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear? Amen. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake, with the swelling thereof, Selah. Selah means think about it. Think about what all just came before, what all we just read. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God, pay close attention, is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early. That means he's going to be quick about it. He ain't going to wait. But did you catch that? Verse five, God is in the midst of her. But just before that, in verse four, the B portion of verse four, he says, there's a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God. But that B portion says, the holy place where the tabernacles of the most high are. Let's talk about his sanctuary. And then verse five adds to that. He's telling you that as it concerns that holy place, God is in that place. I told you. God is in the midst of her. Jesus was in the temple. And he's in the temple with the disciples. It is God's will and intent to be with his people inside the temple. He intends to be inside the temple. And last time I checked, the Bible teaches that we are the temple of God. And just as in In the natural, in this instance, Jesus was physically in the temple. This same thing plays out today in in the spirit. We are the temple. And God's desire is to be in the temple. And when you are a disciple, keep in mind, the disciples were in the temple with Jesus. Jesus is God. God desires to be in the temple with his disciples. Amen. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 16 says this, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Let me say it again. 
It is God's intent. It is God's will to be in the temple, present and accounted for with his disciples. Amen. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing to know that when I commit myself, because we are the temple, but when I decide that I don't, I, I don't want to just, you know, I, 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 yes, I am the, I am the temple and God dwells here, but I'm going to take serious the fact that God dwells within me. I'm committing to his dwelling within me. I'm committing to his will. I'm committing to his way. I am going to undertake the way of God. And I am not going to just read that scripture. I am going to live that scripture to the best of my ability. I am going to do what God says, do. Congratulations. You just graduated from a Christian to a disciple. And if you stay in that, you will continue to be a disciple. And as long as you walk in that discipleship, I'm going to tell you something. God's going to always be in that temple. Yes, the Holy Ghost is going to be right there. He's going to be right there. Ready for you to fellowship with and interact with. Amen. That's some good stuff. That's good to know. It's good to know. Nevertheless, Jesus was in the temple with his disciples and he's near the collection box. Amen. Amen. He's in the temple near the collection box. But while Jesus is in the temple, something happens. Jesus, the scripture teaches us, amen. The scripture teaches us and shows us that while he's in the temple, he begins to focus on something. He begins to pay attention to something, something that's playing out in the sanctuary, something that's happening within the service. Jesus is in the temple and he's paying attention to something. But what's interesting is when we can tell that in verse 41, where Jesus calls the disciples and then calls his attention or enlightens them to what it is that he was beholding or looking at, we can safely assume that prior to Jesus calling his disciples and asking them about this or telling them rather about what's playing out before them, we can reasonably say with assurity that Jesus was in the temple paying attention to something that the disciples were at first not paying attention to. Jesus in the temple was paying attention to something the disciples who were also in the temple, but they were not paying attention to. And that leads us to something. When we are in the presence of the Lord, brothers and sisters, the question is, is are we focused on what God is focused on? Many times we come to church and our mindset, or we begin to operate as the church because we are the church. We take church wherever we go. Many times we come to church and begin to operate or begin to operate the church and our mind is on something else. 
our mind is focused on this. Maybe it's one aspect of the service or another aspect of the service. And, and, and heaven forbid, it's on something all the way other than the service whatsoever. But that does happen for, from time to time for, for people. But what we are focused on, I submit to you, in that moment, may not be what God is focused on. We might be at church focused on the singing, but God might not be focused on that. We might be at church focused on this, that, and the other, but God's focus is not on that. And I ask the question, when you go to church, have you, have you tuned your focus to be in line with God's focus? Are you able to perceive the flow of the service, the way things are going? Many people act more ridiculous in the church and pass it off as being religious and being on fire for God. I see more stupidity play out in the church, shrouded in the mask of being on fire for the Lord. Never realizing that what we're doing is counterproductive and is becoming a hindrance to the moving and the flow of the spirit of God in the service. Why? Because we are focused on something else. When you are out of tune with the spirit of God, nine times out of 10, you will not be focused when you are in the service when you are at service, when you are performing service, you will not be focused on what God is focused on. You are going to miss the point of what God is doing. And as long as your eyes, as long as my eyes are on everything else and all these other things, I will never be as effective as I can be. Had I been in tune and in step, in sync with the Holy Ghost, who is God. Are you focused on what God is focused? Does he have to call you like he had to call the disciples to get your attention? I submit to you. If you make prayer and fasting a habit, staying in tune with the word of God and being obedient to the word of God, you will be so in sync with God that you'll begin to natively just catch on and lock on. You'll be able to zero in and focus on the very thing that God is focused on. See, many times people don't, don't, don't get this, and I want to try to explain it. The reason why many people get ridiculous and miss the point, miss the moving of God, is because we have been erroneously trained 
by tradition. And religious rhetoric. And so we come to church with the intent of making church about us. You know what I'm talking about. How many times have you heard somebody tell you, it, 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 come get your blessing? It's all about you. God wants to bless you. It's your time. It's your season. And many of you don't even realize how ridiculous that message is. And it is not of God. It's in the songs that people sing. It's in the messages that they preach all the time. It's all over the place. God already got you. If you are, look, if you've repented of your sins, you are water baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And you have been filled with the Holy Ghost. According to the Bible, Acts chapter 2, 38, start at verse 36. Just keep reading. You'll get the plan. You'll get it right there. If God already has you, then it isn't. When you go to church, do you realize it's not even about you? Yet many times because of the ridiculous messages, we come to church making church about us. Missing the point that it's actually about that sinner or that backslider, that person who's having a hard time, who's coming to your midst. You know, the one that you can't perceive because you're stuck on yourself, because I'm stuck on myself. God already got you, and he's promised to take care of you. So why are you constantly coming to church, making it about you? He has freed you up to focus on your brother and your sister. Why won't you do that? Why won't I do that? Because that's where his focus is. It's God's will that all men be saved. He know everybody's not, but he want them anyway. Stop going to your church and start going to his church, to God's church. Amen. I know that's tough, but we need to hear that. What are you focused on? And is it what God is focused on? Look at Philippians 2 and 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What are you focused on? His mind's supposed to be your mind, supposed to be my mind. Philippians 3, look at 14 through 16. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in, G in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. He said, this is the way you're supposed to think. And if any, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, where 
two, we have already attained. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying you're supposed to be in tune with God. You're supposed to be saying the same thing, minding the same thing. You own the same wavelength. Remember Philippians 2 and 5, let the same mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What are you focused on? You got to get in tune with God if you're going to be focused on the right thing. Nevertheless, Jesus was in the temple next to the treasury. Amen. Amen. The treasury in the temple was a point of interaction between man and God. Okay. It's a, it was a point where it, 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 it's a place where, where man can interact with God because we're able to participate in, in the giving. Giving is a part of service and it's a part of worship. Okay. That's not a man-made thing that we've tacked onto that. No, that's a God introduced thing. Amen. God loves a cheerful giver. God giving is part of it. And so the treasury is the, is a part. The treasury in the temple is a part or was a place or was a point of interaction between man and God. When it comes to the treasury, you got to play a active, I get to play an active participating role. Now, it should not be thought of as odd or strange, okay? That it's near the treasury where we find Jesus in our setting, okay? It should not be thought of as odd. It should not at all be considered strange that in this text, the Lord is found near the place of where the giving was done, okay? That shouldn't be odd. Why? And the reason why it shouldn't be odd, the reason why it shouldn't be strange, the reason why it shouldn't be weird that we found that in this text, we not only find Jesus in the temple, who is God, but we find him by the treasury. Him being there and in that location, near that location in the temple, shouldn't be something that causes us for alarm. Why? Because giving is a commandment. It is not optional. It would make sense for him to be near there in the service from time to time. You don't hear in the scripture that every time he went into the temple that he was right near the treasury. But in this instance, he was near the treasury. And because he was near the treasury in this instance, it should be under it should make complete sense to us why? Because giving is a commandment. It's not optional. Matthew 10 and 8 says this, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely ye have received, freely give. Mark 10, 21, then Jesus beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. Look at Luke 6 and 38, the very first word, give. And it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over shall men give into your bosom for with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured unto you. We love the middle part of that scripture. We love everything after the first give, amen. 
and all the way up to for with the same measure. We love all that part because that's where we get something. That's where people where, yeah, we get the word give again, but but people are giving to us. Uh uh-uh. You start that out. That don't apply to you. That don't apply to me until you get that first give done. That first instance of giving. He said give. And then he finished up by telling you, and the way that you give, what you're going to get is going to be according to what you do. What I get is going to be according to what I do. So that giving is really important. Don't, it, it, don't listen, don't look down on it. Don't, the giving is not a part where, where, where a service should go stale. It should not be looked at as a part, as an interlude. It should not be looked at as, as a part of a happy transition within. No, giving is a part of worship. Do not let the enemy treat, trick you into devaluing that aspect. That is the time for you to be able to interactively participate in God's service. Giving is a part of worship, and he loves, loves, loves a cheerful giver. Now, when I talk about giving here, I don't want you to just think about money. It's giving in every area, all that you can give, your time and your effort and your energy, all of that, your skills, your abilities, your talents. When you have the opportunity to give, give. This thing is bigger than money. But many times we have relegated giving just to money. And so we miss the bigger picture. We don't want to miss the bigger picture. Amen. Amen. Scripture teaches us that, that, that our hearts our hearts will always be found wherever our treasure is. And this is good. We need to know this. Why? Because we're talking about giving. Okay? They were in the treasury. They were in the church, rather, near the treasury. That's where Jesus was. This is where people deposited their treasure or did their giving. Okay? And scripture teaches us that our heart will always be found wherever our treasure is. Matthew 6 and 21 said, and, and, and Luke 12, 34, both cover the same topic or give us the same truth. Six, Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart, heart be also. Luke 12, 34 says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be be also. So you've got two accounts telling us the same thing, that wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. They're going to always be, they're going to always be together. They, they will always be found together. Amen. Now let's dig into that a little bit further. Treasure family and friends in scripture is often a natural metaphor. Did you know that? Well, if you didn't, now you do. Treasure in scripture is often a natural metaphor. What is it a metaphor for? Well, it is a metaphor for the object of one's focus, whether that's spiritual or natural. So treasure in the scripture, okay? In the spiritual sense, okay? Okay? It's a natural metaphor, meaning the treasury or the treasure, rather, okay? Natural treasure 
when spoken of in the scripture. Oftentimes, it's a metaphor for the object of one's focus, okay? Treasure represents what you focus on or what your focus is. And we'll, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll detail that in just a moment. If we, but if then we use what treasure represents metaphorically in the word of God, if we take that and we use that as a lens through which we now take another look at Mark 12 and 41, amen, then we're going to come away with something, a different understanding or, or, or a deeper understanding. And here's what we get. The treasury in the temple was and is a place of offering or sacrifice, okay? Place of offering. Where, and it was a place of offering, the treasury was a place of offering where one deposits of their own free will. So nobody twists your arm, okay? But where one deposits of their own free will, the treasure of their choosing. So the treasury was a place where you decide what you're going to give. Amen. Whatever you give is whatever you decide, whatever your choice is. No twisting your arm, no browning, beating anybody. There are some church leaders that need to hear that. You don't browbeat people to give. God loves a cheerful giver. And when you try to coerce people, into giving what they really don't give, want to give, those people are not going to be blessed by that giving. They don't want to give it and God don't want it. It's not about the dollars and cents and many churches need to come away from that. Because you are dancing on the razor's edge. Flirting with the concept of loving money. And you know what that word says. The love of that stuff is the root of evil. Amen. Amen. You simply make the opportunity to give available to the people and you let God move on those people. And if they don't want to give, let them keep it in their pocket. If they don't want the blessings that God truly has for those that give, that's their problem. You don't need to twist people's arms into giving. Many times churches incur expenses and on overhead. And so they need finances to come in. But they forget that God's house is not a business. And let me serve notice on some people. If your church is undertaking practices that demand that the people have to give, or 
or in essence require the people to give in order to sustain. You need to reevaluate what you have instituted and make sure that it's of God. Because when God instituted a thing, you need to understand just the cheerful givers alone will supply every need that is necessary for that thing. Should there be monetary requirements? I'm just keeping it real. If you institute a practice that takes you to the level where you can't see the spiritual well-being of the people of God because you're too busy trying to get the dollars and cents to come in, you have gone too far. You need to reevaluate that. Amen. Amen. When God gives you something, if it requires finances, God will put into place everything and everyone that you need. You won't have to try to get people to give in order to sustain. No, you won't have to do that. You could simply walk by faith. And just do it the Bible way and God will make sure whatever is necessary, it'll be taken care of. But if you putting in stuff that God hasn't put in place. Then you're going to be pressed to try to make sure you have the resources to sustain. So what am I saying? Stop doing. What God didn't tell you to do. And then browbeating the people to help you finance it. Move with the spirit of God. Put in place only what God tell you to. Stop building your kingdom. And make sure you build in his. Amen. Amen. The treasury in the temple is the place of offering and where we deposit, where one deposits of their own free will, the treasure of their choosing. The treasure you and I deposit, however, and the way we deposit it will always be a direct reflection of the state of our hearts. Because remember, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be also. Amen. The state or condition of our hearts will in turn be a mirror reflection of what you and I in this life, it's going to be a mirror reflection of what you and I have chosen to focus on. So the way it works is like this. Whatever I focus on is what I give priority to. Whatever I prioritize becomes what I make important. Whatever I make important, my heart will then become invested in. And whatever my heart is invested in, that thing becomes my treasure. 
So then, whatever is in your heart, whatever is in my heart, whatever that is, it is ultimately or becomes ultimately what you and I will attempt to offer to God. Whatever's in your heart is what you're going to offer to God. See, when you are giving your offering, you're not just giving, let's say it's money in this case. It's not just money that you are giving but the heart out of which you are giving it is also being given as well. I hope you understand that. Hope you understand that. Now, while in the temple and next to the treasury, something happens told you Jesus began to focus on something that the disciples did. Jesus observed a few things. Amen. Amen. Mark 20, Mark 12 and 41 says, and Jesus sat over against the treasury and look at this phrase and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. Amen. Jesus showed up to the temple and the Bible says he beheld. Interesting word because beheld means to see with attention. Okay. Beheld means to see with attention. Or in other words, beheld means to pay attention to what one is seeing. Amen. That's really what it is. When Jesus, when the Bible says he beheld, it means that he didn't just see it, but it means he paid attention to what he was seeing. He observed and he paid attention to three things. He paid attention to how people gave, he paid attention to who gave, and he paid attention to the condition of those that gave. Just as Jesus did this at the temple back then, family, he's doing the same thing today. He showed up then and God shows up now. Amen. And he does the same thing. He pays attention when he shows up to who we are, pays attention to how we give. And he pays attention to the condition or the circumstances under which we give it. The Lord pays attention to that. Amen. When he shows up to church, he pays when he shows up to the temple. And remember, we're not talking about just the physical building. We're talking about you. He's paying attention to how the giving is done. Amen. The Lord family is always watching or observing. Amen. He's always watching and he's always observing. 
and because he's watching and observing, okay? Because I told you, he, he pays attention to who we are, how we give, and the condition or the circumstances under which we give it. When Jesus shows up, God Almighty shows up, he's always watching, and he is always observing. Now, this is important to know. Why? Because it means that he always knows, because he's watching and observing, he always knows who we really are, no matter what we might pretend to be. Amen. 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 Look at 1 Samuel 16 and 7. The word of God says this, but the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his circumcontinence, look not on his continence or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Amen. That's 1 Samuel 16 and 7. The Lord shows up. And when he shows up, he's always watching. He's always paying attention. And because he does that, you understand something. God is always aware of who we really are. No matter what truck gloss we try to put on, what mask we try to put on, God knows who you are. Amen. 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 He knows exactly who we are. Because our scripture set, our scripture set tells us very plainly that he beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich, he identified them as rich. He was paying attention. Amen. Amen. And then 42 said, and there came a certain poor widow. He knew who she was. It didn't say that he talked with her. It did not say that there was a conversation that went on around him where she was and he was able to overhear. Uh, he knew and he knew it by observation. God knows who you really are. He knows who you are. He knows your circumstance. He knows all about you. He knows what state you're in. He knows the condition of your heart. And the question is, who does Jesus see when he watches you? Because he knows who you really are. He paid attention to how these people gave. So the question is, is what is Jesus's estimation of my service? How does he view what I do? What's his view of what you do? Philippians 2 and 4 says this, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things 
of others. How we give is important. And because the Lord is paying attention and he's paying for close attention, then it ought to be important to us to consider just what we are presenting to the Lord. We ought to be concerned about what the Lord sees, what's his estimation, what's his opinion of my service. What's his view concerning the things that I do? Am I real? Or am I just going through the motions? What is my motivation? Anybody can just do a thing, but why are you doing it? Remember, 1 Samuel 16 and 7. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. God knows who you really are. God knows what's behind the facade, what's behind the mask. He knows what you're really doing. He knows what you're really up to. So how long are we going to come to church playing games with God when he won't be fooled, he won't be duped, and he won't be made a fool of? So when are we going to stop playing games as if God does not know? Jesus was in the temple and he was paying attention. To what people were giving. Because what they give, gave and the way they gave it was a reflection of what was in the heart. And it is the heart that God pays attention to. Amen. When Jesus shows up to the temple, Jesus is aware of who's giving. Verse 41, Mark chapter 12 said this, towards the B portion, many that were rich. And then in verse 42, he called her out as, identified her as a poor widow. He's aware of who's giving. When That means he's aware of what you have. He is aware of, <laughs> of your, he, he is aware of your ability. He, uh, he is aware. 
He is aware, whatever it is that you do for the Lord, keep this in mind. God is not only aware of what I do, but he is also aware of what I have the capability to do. And if my capability, if my capacity allows me to do more than what I'm doing, God is paying attention to that. Jesus identified this woman as a poor widow. Psalms 34 and 6 says, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. That word poor means a person with few or no possessions, but not yet reduced to begging. So in, other, in essence, sometimes being poor does not mean that you are simply destitute of everything. But there are areas and times of times where one is poor. in that they don't have enough of the things in which they need. When Jesus shows up to our temples, he's aware of the condition out of which we give. because he was aware of how, of the condition out of which they gave. How much of a sacrifice to God really is our offering? He pays attention to that. How much are you actually really sacrificing? Is it a sacrifice at all? Does my sacrifice have a cost associated with it? Because the word of God tells us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. How much of a sacrifice are you and I really making when we offer to God? And again, I got to remind you, we're not talking about just money. In fact, you can remove money out of we. <laughs> because there's a whole lot of us that would rather sacrifice money than anything else. But it's the everything else that's the greatest need. Your time, your effort, your energy, and all of that, 
that's where the greatest need is. But so many of us will not give that. We'd rather give money. Does my sacrifice, does your sacrifice have a cost associated with it? Here's some characteristics of an acceptable sacrifice or an acceptable offering. Does my offering have a cost associated with it? The offering we give should be of our own and not someone else's. First Chronicles 21, 23 through 24 says this. And Ornan said unto David, take it to thee and let my Lord, the king, do that which is good in his eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing instruments for wood and the wheat for the meat offering. I give it all. Look at this. Ornan's given David everything he needs, the offering and the sacrifice. He's given him everything. He said, I give it all. Verse 24. And King David said to Ornan, nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord nor offer burnt offerings without cause. Look at that phrase. I will not take that which is thine for the Lord. The offerings we give, the offering we give should be of our own and not someone else's. It's okay to say, to tell God, thank you and to worship him for what he's done for other people and the blessings and, 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 and the times that he's come through for others and, and this, that, and other. It's okay to recognize God for what he's doing in the midst of friends and family and in the world. It's okay to glorify God, but at some point you got to start recognizing God. You've got to glorify God for what he has done for you. You've got to have a mindset that says, I am not going to let the rocks cry out for me. As long as I've got breath in my body, I am going to worship the Lord my God because he is absolutely worthy. At some point, you got to offer your own sacrifice. It's got to be your own offering. God, I thank you for what you're doing in my family. Yes, but when are you going to tell him thank you for what he's doing for you? what he's done for you. The offering we give should be of our own and not someone else's. Another characteristic is that the sacrifice, the sa is that the sacrifices that always get accepted are the ones that cost us something to give. Acceptable offerings are offerings that cost you something in order to give. Second Samuel 24, verses 24 and 25. And the king said to Aruna, nay, but I will surely buy it off thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver 
And David built there an altar unto the Lord and and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. Notice what he said in verse 24. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, my God, of that which doth cost me nothing. The offerings that God accepts, always accepts, are the ones that cost you something, family. What is God looking for? The sacrifices of God, Psalms 34, 18 and 19 says this, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save it such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Did you hear what he said in that A portion of 18? The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save it such as be of a contrite spirit. Why is that even important? Because if you go to Psalm 51 and look at verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou will not despise. It means he won't turn it away. The sacrifice got to cost you something. And God's looking for that offering. To come from a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It's got to mean something. But it can't just be anything that you offer. You got to offer what God wants. The place that it's got to come from is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That's the nature of the sacrifices. But what is the sacrifice? Well, believe it or not, God has actually already given you and I the treasure that he wants from us. His word or the gospel, his glory, And the revelation of his truth. These are the things that he's given to us. He's committed to us. And these actually are the things, the things that he's committed to us are the things that he actually wants from us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 through 7. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. 
For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, look at that, in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What is the treasure that he's talking about? It's the gospel. What he's talking about, the treasure that he's talking about is all of the things that proceed from verse number three. Our gospel, which is his word. In whom the God of the world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, light represents glory. He's given us his gospel, which is his light, which contains his glory. And he's commanded it to shine out of darkness. What does that mean? We was lost in sin. And here come his gospel. Here come his truth. Here come his glory. Showing us the way. That glory, that gospel, that word, that truth. That's the treasure. That's what he wants us to give. Mark 12, 41. We learn that Jesus is at the temple and he's got, and he's at the treasury and he's watching how these people give. And he watches in verse 42, how this widow, this poor widow, how she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And then he calls his disciples over in 43. And he uses this as an object lesson. He says, verily I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. And then he explains it. He says, for they, for all they did cast in of their abundance. But she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. She gave the most because she gave the very thing that she needed. She gave the most. They gave what they could afford. But she gave what she needed. She needed that money.
She needed that money. But instead, she gave it. And sometimes, family, you got to be willing to give what you need most. We need the word of God. We needed the gospel. And that very thing that we need is the very thing that God has placed in us as the treasure. We've got to be willing to give that gospel, that word, the very thing that we need the most because we live by it, family. The very thing that we live by has got to be the thing that we give. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father. The word of God, we've got to give the thing that we need the most. We've got to give the word of God. In our text, she gave money. But for us, it's not necessarily money. But it's our time, our effort, our energy for the sake of the gospel and for the spread of the word. Not only that, but there are other principles as well. But you have to be willing to give the thing that you need the most. When you find yourself without joy, you've got to decide that I'm going to worship God with joy. I'm going to give joy. And in return, he reciprocates, he responds by giving you joy. When I need joy, I'm going to worship with joy. Because when I worship with joy, I'm going to receive joy from his presence. Do you see what I'm saying? The thing that you need has got to be the thing that you offer because that is an acceptable sacrifice. God bless you, brothers and sisters. I pray that this word helps you and that you spread it and that you every day make it a point to do what you do for the Lord from the heart with truth and sincerity. God bless you. Have a good one. And until next time. Wow.